0: Dear listeners, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, broadcasting across the globe. I'm your host, Karen Tate, author of the recent books, Goddess Calling, and editor of Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape Our World. Conversations we need to foster a new normal, a better quality of life for most of us as we strive to create a world free of oppression, domination, inequality, and war. A world where we value each other and Mother Earth. And appropriately, the snippet opening tonight's show is part of uh, the cut from an album by Celia, and it's called Meta Prayer. Well, uh, lots to share with you tonight. Stay with me after my interview with uh, Patricia Albert on the topic of mutual awakening. Because we have a What's the Buzz episode, uh, which will include uh, some of the following. Uh, Pat sent in an interesting short article about the penis and male force using the ISIS-Osiris myth. You're going to like that. Uh, Kathy Pagano, our resident astrologer, can't be with us until May, but she sent in the Cosmic Story... So you have some idea about the upcoming lunar eclipse and blood moon and the energies that are going to be uh, coming with that. Uh, Dorma uh, sent some information from an important article about why you should spend your money on experiences and not things, which, um, you know, I can attest that I think I maybe subconsciously realized that about a decade or more ago, and um, I think it's helped me be a lot more grateful and happy. And I have to say, wow, 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 did we have a fantastic... Artemis ritual and book launch party at the Goddess Temple of Orange County last Saturday. We had standing room only. Everyone was all abuzz about Dr. James Rietfeld's passion and dedication researching uh, Artemis of Ephesus for his book of the same title. We were blown away by the uh, they were blown away by the authenticity of the ritual that was their feedback. Uh, folks said the guided meditation was moving and transformative. And you know what? We raised almost $600 for the Goddess Temple of Orange County. Much needed money. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but for one event... That was not bad at all. You know, people see the goddess temple and think it's flush with cash, you know, because it's beautiful. But, you know, it's not really. It's far from flush with cash. They barely make ends meet every month. It takes $5,000 a month to keep that space open. You know, we're talking utilities, rent, insurance, you know, stuff like toilet paper, candles, And no one gets a salary. Everyone, including Ava, the founder and center holder, they're not on any payroll. So we thank the temple and Ava for allowing us to have that big bash there. It was our pleasure to give them all the proceeds. And, you know, please consider joining the temple. Did you know that for only $25 a month you can become a member and help them do their work in the world to empower women, to teach women and and men about goddess? We give money you know, every day to uh, causes like maybe the Sierra Club, uh, Emily's List, Greenpeace, uh, maybe political parties, other important causes, consider putting the Goddess Temple on that list, consider becoming a member because they do need your help, even if you don't visit the temple. Because, as I said, it's a struggle to make ends meet. And, you know, it's a great honor to be able to say you're a member of one of the only brick-and-mortar goddess temples on the face of the earth. So consider joining for yourself and to help the temple. Remember, what we support and nurture thrives, what we neglect and take for granted. Well, you know it eventually withers. And please, uh, if you haven't already seen the photos from the ritual floating around Facebook, uh, go to my Karen Tate Facebook page and scroll down a bit, uh, because most of them got posted on, I think, uh, Sunday. There are lots there. So I guess in the spirit of the ritual, hail Artemis. (laughs) Okay, uh, with our announcements out of the way, let's get to tonight's special guest, Patricia Albert, and our important topic of mutual awakening. Uh, First, a bit about Patricia, so you have a sense of her and her work. Uh, She's the founder and director of the Evolutionary Collective and an internationally known contemporary spiritual teacher and author. Her unique discovery of the essential components that create an awakened we space is transforming our understanding of what is possible in the space between us and in creating new fields of higher collective consciousness. Her work creates a powerful field of shared consciousness that reveals previously unimagined potentials for human development that can and is moving humanity far beyond the limits of personal growth. She's worked with over 150,000 people in groups, in the last 40 years, her mastery as a transformative teacher is now innovating a new field of intersubjective awakening and post personal development. And her website is her name, patriciaalbear.com. That's patricia, A L B E R E.com. So, Patricia, welcome, welcome to Voices of the Sacred
1: Feminine. Thank you. I feel very excited to be having this conversation with you.
0: Well, I'm so glad uh, you're here with me tonight. When your book uh, arrived in the mail, Mutual Awakening, it uh, sort of struck a chord with me because, as I was telling you uh, before we went on the air, uh, so many of us who uh, live Goddess Spirituality, teach Goddess Spirituality, well, you know, we always say it's about the we and the us as opposed to the I and the me. It's about caring and nurturing and. Um, i guess you could say sort of um looking out for one another taking care of each other as opposed to this you know i got mine and screw you kind of attitude that uh uh is out there you know the greed and um you know all the horrible ugliness that causes so much suffering and um i guess i'm wondering um did is there a connection between what i just described and what you call mutual awakening I, to some
1: degree. I mean, there's there's always, um, you know, there's sort of different realms of consciousness, right? You know, there'll always be a healthy I, you know, a cer- certain sense of individuated consciousness um, that can be either very egoic, right, as you were saying, mm-hmm. and very sort of base, base instinctual, kind of almost animalistic um, level of consciousness, or it can be a very pure point of like an origination point where the soul first just comes in and has a, a particularity and a distinctness, which is very beautiful and part of the way. Um, so I think, and you can have, uh, you know, us and we that's very codependent and, you know, sort of unhealthy, and you can have it be, you know, the highest experience of, um, you know, almost possible. So, I, you know I, I i see it a little bit differently the the mutual awakening has has more to do with um at this point in our consciousness i mean for me you know i was like a teenager 40 years ago and um you know walked into the tr- personal transformation um world i met werner erhard and and worked with Aston, which is now landmark um when i was 18 and you know, have done very, you know, many different kinds of spiritual work since. And I think this, you know, this last 40-something years has has been the decade, you know, not the decade, but the era of of individual awakening, you know, people going to India and and even, you know, studying the goddess work, you know, like, you know, women, women's spirituality, you know, coming online, which is mm-hmm. different than the sort of hyper-masculine way of, of trying to get awakened and, you know, I think it's been a very rich and amazing, you know, 40 years of people really valuing their own consciousness. Um, What I am seeing, you know, that there's the beginning of a different wave. It doesn't, I mean, the the wave of our own individual awakening has to keep going um, and and hopefully we'll gather more and more steam and gather more people to want to pay attention to, you know, who they are and their connection to the planet and to the world and to God, and to spirit, you know, however people call that. But to me, the the collective awakening, you know, discovering, kind of like, like mapping, you know, it's like matching the science with consciousness, like, you know, the kind of science that people are, are pointing to now, which is very different than a Newtonian kind of science. We're still living like we're separate objects in space.
0: And you mean, we don't live
1: like we are, this interconnectedness. Right, you know, right. Our consciousness isn't matching that. And that's what I'm working on, is, is actually working with people so that the kind of consciousness that they begin to swim in is really different than an individual moving through time and space.
0: So in other words, um, and, and, and if I got this wrong, don't be afraid to tell me. That's okay. Yeah, sure. I, I want to understand. So the mutual awakening is uh, people awakening, uh, you know, a vast swath of people, awakening to the idea of our interconnection. Is that more accurate about what the mutual awakening is?
1: Definitely. Here's a funny thing. A friend of mine had gone to one of those, I can't remember what the name of it was, but they had all these incredible spiritual leaders met at the Pope's Summer Palace, and Deepak was there, and the Dalai Lama, and, And a lot of other, you know, luminaries, you know, really extraordinary um, men and women who inspire us, you know, millions and millions of people in their spiritual lives. And what he said was interesting was that you'd think something very exciting would happen, but actually each person, even though they were inspiring, they were, they sort of separately espoused or emanated, you know, whatever their message was, but nothing was happening between the people. And I thought that is so interesting because we have an assumption, you know, I'm sure the people that are listening are, you know, on some kind of a path. And we just assume like if we get awake enough and we're pure enough and we're loving enough and we, you know, we sort of work on our shadow and, you know, all the other stuff, you know, that eventually if we become more realized human beings that obviously we'll relate to each other in a more realized way. And even though it, it improves things, there's something between us that is not awake.
0: Mm. Okay. so other it's, like, you're saying. it's like you have
1: these two amazing people, like, let's say you're, you know, straight. And, you know, you've got this gorgeous man who's beautiful and awake and this, you know, gorgeous woman. And there's no baby being born. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you not being a baby. You know, it's kind of like that's what's how You know, human beings are not coming together in the space between and I really being I, in a, and making, you know, sort of consciousness babies, <laughs> or creative no, I, babies, or love babies, I, you know, we're not making something new together.
0: I see what you're when saying. When we come together. So it's like, we're, we're, you know, we're all maybe kind of talking the talk, but we haven't figured out how to come together in solidarity, perhaps. To, and maybe that's the reason why we haven't had more of an impact, you think?
1: yeah I think that it just wasn't time, you know, I think we had to do our individual work, you know if you think about humanity over time, you know over thousands of years, you know if you took the people in the middle ages i mean they they weren't remotely in the kind of consciousness that we're in, and so they weren't sensitive to themselves, they weren't attuned, they weren't developed in many ways you know they they you know back then they thought reading was like a miracle. So, you know, we've developed individually. And, and you know, as you know, like, you know, just the spiritual work that's been done, people, you know, have a sense of who they are and, and what their purpose is, and they're connected in certain ways that, you know, we weren't maybe 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So that all had to happen, but now... If that keeps going, in my experience, you know, I'm, I'm living in Northern California, which is sort of the epicenter of people having worked on themselves and done a lot of serious spiritual work. It's kind of like if we don't now shift to a new dimension of paying attention to what's actually happening between us and developing an awakened consciousness, like we almost becoming a new being, like a larger mm-hmm. being together, like cells finally come together and create something larger. Mm-hmm. then it becomes quite narcissistic. You know, after a while people processing and doing their shadow work and doing more yoga and doing more of everything, it's sort of like there's a point where you think okay and then mhm and then what? Even people who become, you know, sort of political and make a difference and you know I have lots of friends who you know are very just amazing people, you know, who have transformed the lives of, you know, thousands of people. You know, there's a place where what if what if we all came together and started to discover what was possible between us, that we could come together and, like, become something greater?
0: So what do you think is the... That's what I'm working. Why are we not, you know, why are we not making that ultimate connection? You know, why are we still sort of on it's our voluntary individual path?
1: But we're not paying attention to something other than our individual path. You know, we might pay attention to interpersonal relationships, you know, like between people, you know, trying to get a little bit better at that. But that's different than an awakened consciousness together. You know, we're still kind of separate in that. So I'll I'll just share a story where the consciousness, where the awakening happened for me was, you know, I had done a lot of work and I'd been a teacher and and, um, at one point, you know, retired when I gave birth to my son. Um, and then did that for a couple of years and then started to, you know, to really yearn for a spiritual path. And I ended up back in the 80s going to um, Rajneesh's or Osho's place in, port you know, outside of Portland. Do you know who Osho is?
0: No, I don't actually.
1: He was an Indian uh, guru who was, you know, fairly well known. His name was Rajneesh. And so I went there and I ended up meeting this, you know, sort of unlikely person, um, this beautiful German mystic um, who was eight years younger and, you know, really handsome, kind of looked like Jesus. And, you know, and I thought, and and his English wasn't even all that good. And I just thought I'd just gotten divorced. You know, I had a four year old and I thought, oh my God, I was so attracted to him. But I thought, you know, there's nothing, I didn't think there was something really larger than this sort of incredible attraction to this beautiful man. And we ended up, being together, and we really fell in love. I mean, we fell in love, like, in that kind of explosive, shocking uh, way. And, you know, he really ended up being my twin soul or whatever you want to call it, Um, you know, something extraordinary happened between us. And he was very mystical and very devoted to kind of being in a very present sort of altered state of consciousness continuously. And and I was so in love with him and so able to surrender that we ended up entering into a kind of shared consciousness that we shared for four years. And we were so turned towards the truth, kind of like the way mystics are, and so surrendered that in twenty four hours the kinds of experiences that we had and where we were taken and the love for each other and you know, these kind of mind blowing altered you know, altered consciousness stuff, it was wild, you know, and and the, the love and the you know, the kind of shattering of all the places that would separate um us from each other and from from, you know, the divine was just getting we were getting pummeled, you know, with this kind of moving through and um, we had an awakening, you know, that was pretty sustained, but it was together. You know, we were inside of something together and Mm -hmm. then he he was in a car accident and then a coma and um, was brain injured pretty badly and then eventually killed himself. So, you know, within two years I had been through hell and then he died. And, you know, it was like a nightmare, um, you know, anyway, but, but the experience of the shared consciousness, I didn't know what to do with it, because then he was gone, so it wasn't an individual awakening, it was something that had happened together, and I had no idea how to process that, and what happened was, eventually, you know, I went through a lot of stuff, but, and kept teaching, and working with people, and then about 10 years ago, I thought that was just a personal thing that I had had been dealing with, and about ten years ago, I realized that I was sort of finished teaching and, and working with people in groups, you know, on their individual work. Something in me just was was finished. and I thought, well, so then what? you know what's, where's the new edge? Where's the new possibility for growth and consciousness? And it dawned on me that the kind of consciousness that we had shared, that maybe There was something more than what we had experienced, that there was the multiple beloveds, that it was time for humanity, the people that were ready, you know, to come together and to discover how to be inside that kind of consciousness that we were sharing without being lovers. Right, right. Well, that's... that's that's, that's what I started working on. And that's well, what that's
0: taken a huge leap, don't you think? I mean there's so many people <laughs> uh I, I mean seriously, I, I mean even the most evolved people that I know um right. aren't anywhere near what you're talking about. You know, that that's sort of I guess, level of um, connection. I mean, the language kind of fails you, you know. Um, Right. You know, know, even the the people who I know who think they're the most involved, you know, they're still, you know, dealing with the petty stuff. You know, they're still stuck on the wedge issues. You know, I I mean, a group I belong to, uh, as crazy as this might sound, you know, heterosexual and, and lesbian women, you know, you would think women who have been, um, uh, discriminated against their entire life, gay women uh, who doubly discriminated against. Um, you know, some of these women want to sort of turn around and discriminate against transgenders. You know, and so and so, oh. you're thinking that if you know people are that unevolved that they can't see that, you know, um, then how how do they make that leap? to the next level if, you know, if I'm understanding what you're talking about, you know, because right. I mean, we're still stuck in these, you know, petty mundane, um, you know, me versus you and, um, you know, we, we we haven't achieved this we, us kind of mentality. It's not like we're really in it together. Um, right and that 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 upsets me. I, I have to tell you you know because I think especially given that circumstance I just described to you, you would think women would be able to come together and overcome those sorts of obstacles because they've all known discrimination they 've all you know been marginalized, devalued, or at least a lot of them have, so then how could they turn around and perpetuate the same thing on another you know um so I guess it it uh i'm cynical. You know um I wish yeah. I was more hopeful you know well, here's here's
1: the thing the the it's a human issue, so that this all the different layers of separation and some levels of separation, the membrane around us, we just think is normal, and what I'm doing is it's not for everyone um it's definitely a developmentally you know people have to be ready, um, and we have people that are young and you know boomers and you know couple of people that are like eighty five you know i mean from from twenty seven to like eighty five but it's people where there's some of some of the things that that seem to be the the people that are called to this is one is they've either done enough work on themselves and they're you know by no means perfect or enlightened but um they're kind of like lonely and bored, you know there's a certain level of okay, so I should keep processing myself but you know, there's a longing for something with other people that you can't quite put your finger on. So you, like, feel like, I know there's something possible. I know that whatever really potentiating my own sense of, you know, why I'm here on the planet, it isn't just my individual purpose. It's somehow I need to find my right others. Yeah. Well, and I mean, so I know a lot, people,
0: talking, a lot of people are talking about, Finding spiritual community. Now, what you're talking uh, about might be a more elevated spiritual community, but this maybe... is this is
1: like, yeah, this is definitely spiritual community. But it's it's wanting, it's the people that are longing for that, and then they and they know that their potentials really will lie in finding the right others that that you can really that that you can really meet each other, right? And then discover together humbly how do we. How do we take apart those kinds of separation? You know, how do we really get humble and go, what the hell are we doing? Like, you know, in the group that I'm, you know, I have like over 100 people that have committed, you know, for working, you know, for a year, some people two years, some people I've worked with for the last six years in the group. And, you know, we're sort of like a, a what do you call it, a trial bunch of humans, you know, who are willing to really go into the depths of this connection. And it is so beautiful, and people have been so willing, you know, to also acknowledge their humanness. But nobody has the right, you know, we sort of like, if you decide to do this, I I do a three-day where um, I take people into the space and consciousness that this is being done in, and there's seven different vectors. It's like if you want to find a space in the room, you have to find three vectors, you know, distance from... The ceiling, you know, from the floor and from one of the walls, so you can find the point. This is seven vectors. And, you know, one of the vectors has to do with people need to be willing to be courageous, period. So if they want to be prideful and think they know everything and hold on to their points of view and perspectives, then they can't really do this. You know, we don't, you know, you can sort of get hooked on that for a minute, but you only have about a minute. And then I'll say, "Okay, guess what? You know, if you're holding on to something and there's a hundred other people there, like you can't do that. We need to be open with each other. We need to be courageous and open, even when it's hard
0: i, so I, if I you I, imagine I, I, that
1: one thing changes the game,
0: but i'm 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 having a little bit of trouble following you. So you actually have a hundred people in the room
1: yeah we have we have um actually right now we have two groups. Um, there's two living, you know, like where they meet four times a year for three days and then we do different virtual things and practices. But one is in New York and one is in uh, San Francisco and there's 60 people in one and there's 40-something in the other.
0: Well, what you just the, oh, talked about, you know, the seven vectors and, you know, uh, letting go of, like your preconceived um, notions and, and sort of – I mean – i i i felt like I missed something in between i mean well, the what seven, do you the, actually the, say that you know it, it uh, um you know i I guess I'm just trying to figure out like the in process. the group that
1: you're in, you don't have any agreements about whether people get to hold on to their points of view or not, like everybody just assumes like you know they have the right to be do you know what the what the definition of pride is, mhm.
0: Well, well, what would you say? I mean, there's probably well, pride you know, more is than pride that is a
1: perspective that you know pretty much captures most people. It's a fairly vibrationally low level of consciousness, but you feel like you're right. You know, you tend to defend your point of view. You know, you're going to sort of justify your sense of identity. Um, you know, a lot of successful people operate a pride. But
2: mm-hmm.
1: the moment, if you're leading a group, if you're working with people, if someone stands up and they're holding on. It doesn't mean that you can't feel like you know something, but if you do it from an open place, it's very different than a prideful place. Mm -hmm. And if someone is, you know, if you have a group and everybody just does what they do, you know, people will inevitably stand inside of, you know, holding on to pride.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And the moment they do that, the whole room goes down the tubes. Right. You know that, right? So, so one of the vectors, if I, you know, when we do the three-day and we take people into the consciousness, they understand that if, if they decide to do the year-long, they have to be willing to mostly come from, from, you know, to go beyond pride, which is to be encouraged, to be courageous about whatever their experience is, and to be open.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if they really can't do that, it's not going to work to be in a collective where you're working on the space between you. You just can't do it.
0: So are these people, um, I, I mean, how often do they meet? I mean, are they working I'm, on this with these other people just like three times a year, so basically 12 days
1: out of the year? Or, or are they actually practicing this in their everyday life? or all, all of the above. So they meet four times a year in person, and then um, we also they also commit to two virtual calls you know, we use Maestro where everybody gets on the phone, everyone's together. And then they also have um, small groups that they meet with twice a month, and they also do a practice once a week with a partner that takes them into the consciousness. So so it's pretty, you know, it's a total of like two hours a week that they're involved with this, um, mm-hmm. you know, either doing a practice or being in a meeting. So we figure that's enough to stay in the consciousness and to keep developing it and yet, you know, have... A big life, or have a you know have a life that you're paying attention to. So, um, you know, that's what the people that are in the fellowship collective are doing.
0: So, what is the end result? What progress or what accomplishments have you seen as
1: the end result? Happens.
0: Yeah. What, what's happening? Yeah. So
1: the 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 first you know the first accomplishment is is that what we're doing is building the connectivity between us. So it's like you're building the nervous system for a larger being. So like if you were in a jazz quartet, you know, if you played your instruments a lot together and you started to learn how to go into that space of improv, you start to become like a one, there's a really great jazz group. They're not They're They become one when they play, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they're not separate when they're playing. There's a kind of flow when it's really happening. And so what we're building is that kind of connectivity between us. And it's amazing. I mean, it's actually like you can feel, you know, there's actually a group that's discovering how to be in that kind of flow and oneness is extraordinary. And then we work on, you know, obviously the various ways that human beings are that um, displace that kind of oneness. You know, we work on different levels of the group, you know, like belonging and, you know, sort of Maslow's hierarchy and and then practices that are so powerful and beautiful. And, and we we experience having sort of a shared, like pretty consistently going into shared mystical um, experiences together that's really kind of rewiring us.
0: Well, it sounds, um, sounds hopeful, sounds, um, you know, pretty optimistic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, so so basically, you know, taking oh, it out well. of the metaphor, you know, taking it out of the metaphor and put it, putting it in, you know, an actual example. Um, or, or yeah. are we stri- are we strictly speaking about, um, you know, human interrelations improve, or are we are we talking beyond that even?
1: It's beyond that. Um, you know, that actually happens, and we have a lot of teachers and leaders and. You know people that impact the world in it you know there are a lot of you know pretty amazing people that have decided to do this, and they're sharing obviously the consciousness and the things that they're learning with their hospital or their school or their you know spiritual students or you know whatever various things that they're doing um We have a Catholic nun we've got a uh one of Swami muktananda's you know um or guru Mai's, you know celibate monks who's in it, and and just some really amazing people. But the thing that's shifting, which is fascinating, is their consciousness um, is moving to being more fluid. So instead of having this sort of solid sense of identity, like kind of like you're in your own little car, like you're in some kind of identity vehicle, it feels like, and a lot of the practices that we do, allow people's consciousness to become more fluid. So like what happened with Peter and I was I wasn't just in myself. I was kind of all the time in him and in me and also in the space between us. So I had sort of a multi-dimensional sense of consciousness. It was sort of located in at least three different places sort of simultaneously. With I could always... In him, I could always feel him from the inside, and he could feel me, mm-hmm. and I could also sense the space of our relatedness, you right. know, the space we were in together, and kind of the field around us. So it sort of floated and kind of moved around very naturally. And the people are beginning to, um, you know, really experience that as a more sustained sense of consciousness. So they they feel the field around them much more consciously, you know, wherever they are um, as they get into this. And and they can also feel the other people in the group. They could feel me. You know, it's kind of like there's, there's like a, an Internet instead mm-hmm. of an Internet that sort of kicks in and starts to get stronger because, you know, obviously human beings have telepathic capacities and, you know, we're more psychically capable than for the most part we ever developed. And a lot of that develops as well.
0: So, because women tend to be more intuitive, uh, much they, they say. Are, are women better? Because, um, you know, they say women are more intuitive. Um, are women better right, right. than men?
1: Um, hmm, that's a good question. Depends. You know, I would say it's easier for us to be surrendered in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but men are pretty at least the men that are showing up around this, you know, which are not your normal men. Um, but we've had guys who are like in the Wall Street and, you know, I mean sort of really guy guys. Mm-hmm. And they they do amazingly well. Pretty, so, it's pretty awesome. So do you think this
0: uh, awakening uh, can impact, you know, the problems that we have out there in the world?
1: Well, I think, here's what I think is important. I think that the planet, you know, with the Internet, with all the things that are sort of collectively coming online, um, and I know Tehard de Chardin, who was a Jesuit uh, priest, who spoke a lot about, you know, this sort of coming together of consciousness. I think that my part is to try to create a very high-level awakening with larger and larger groups of people, and if we can become sort of like this collective being, like this big jazz group, right, but only mm-hmm. with consciousness, and we can create some pathways, you know, sort of a prototype for that in consciousness, that's going to help more collective beings kind of awaken. Because if you think about families, if you think about organizations, if you think about the government, I mean, can you imagine, you know, if, if like I could get my hands on, the Senate, and they were actually willing to discover how to become one being that that is really interrelated in a way where their consciousness and their connectivity was that, you know, that awake. Mm-hmm. Wow, you know, like what what couldn't we get done? Right. If well, they yeah, there was would a different. They would all you know, have to, be very different. So.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, they would all have to, you know. Well, they would have to drop that what you talked yeah. about in the beginning—that idea An of agenda. who they are and what their identity and their agendas are. Yeah. And, and and don't take this in a negative way, but I keep thinking sure. about the I, I keep thinking about the Borg, <laughs> and I keep thinking about right. the movie no, that's of Avatar. There are people have. Huh? That's
1: the funny thing is I don't know if it, that totally comes up for people is what happens in this which is. Fascinating is because you have to remember it was it's developmental. So you have people that have developed their sense of identity in a very strong way. You know, I don't. We don't have people that are bland by any by any means. You know, in the group, but the consciousness of unity, interestingly, is not um, merged. It's actually the distinctness of uniqueness becomes more vivid. And Teilhard de Chardin spoke about this. And, you know, if you think about how molecules, you know, atoms come together to be molecules and, you know, it sort of goes up the chain. The way they become united is by sharing some kind of characteristic energy, like, a, you know, a magnetism or whatever it is. For humans to become one, we actually have to share some kind of characteristic energy that allows for... Um, us to unite. You know, when we share, in our normal way, we share egoic energy, which is based in separation, so we're never going to become one. And when we start to share, what I have people sharing in the ways that they practice is this incredibly attuned consciousness and sensitivity to exactly who's over there. To the being of the other person, the distinct being, like it was with Peter and I. I mean, hmm. he was so vivid to me. I mean, if he was, if he showed up in a different body, you know, as a woman or something, I mean, I would know it was him because I can taste him. Do I mean, I know exactly who that being is. Right, right. And that's what happens in the in the work that we do is people's deep, deep sense of self. Is actually what gets connected to.
0: Well, you know, I, I'm thinking too about the, those old books, the Celestine prophecy. <clears throat> uh-huh. and it seems You know, and, and the and, you know the people kept evolving and evolving and evolving, and I, I I'm wondering if you know the little baby steps we're making as human beings. You know. Yeah. um You know, we, we're suddenly, and, and I mean, I know you're talking about something on a different level, but I mean, you have to work up to what you're talking about. So just by by virtue of the fact that maybe we don't have slavery anymore, maybe women will one day make equal pay and be considered equal to men. Um, you know, we're talking about, you know, rape is a bad thing now on college campuses. You know, domestic violence is a bad thing now. Um, you know, we're talking about, you know, human rights. And um, do you think those are all sort of uh, precursors to or to hone human beings into a better um species to be able to take this next paradigm shift that you're talking about. Definitely.
1: So no, all the work that we've done in the last 40 years, I mean, I and, you know, that we have an, a black man as a president is also, you know, I mean, that the you know, from my mother's time um, until now, it's like so much has been accomplished there. It's not done, but it's wildly different. Right. You know, it's, right. we have gotten a lot done, <clears throat> but we're still separate. And yeah. I think that the consciousness that we're developing um, is taking it a bit further, so that if I'm, if I can feel you from the inside, you know, if 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 a man could feel you know, the experience of a woman from deeply within her, it would be very hard for him to do what men do sometimes. Right, right. Because you can't objectify. A lot of what I'm working on is the shattering of this sense of objectification, which is being separate.
0: Right, right, I know when I took yeah. some Kabbalah classes, you know one of the things they taught about was separation, and it was when you when you had separation, whether it was in whether it was within the cells of your body or whether it was separation from other human beings. That's well. If it was separate, if you had separations in your body, uh, it, within the cells of your body, that's what enabled disease to enter. Likewise, right. out out in the world, if there was separation between human beings, that's when we have strife and you know all of the ugliness. Yes. And um, but uh, but you know, I guess it. Uh, you know, I,
1: I, Huh? Say again. We can't. Part of what gets happens in the way that we're working is people get really sensitized to themselves because, you know, we marginalize things in ourselves.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We minimize, you know, how we actually even feel things. And we are insensitive to each other. True. So by heightening consciousness and sensitivity um, and complexity, you know, the ability to sort of hold more dimensions and perspectives at once, you know, it can't do anything but make for a more human world. You know, a, a more humanized world.
0: So, Patricia, let's say um, somebody walks into your class for the like the very first time. Right. What, what what happens in that class? I mean, what? I mean, beyond what you've said already, which partly yeah. makes sense to me, and and partly, you know, <laughs> it's a little bit too metaphoric. Um, you know, I mean, what, you know, what do you actually do? I mean, um, I, I you know, are you just sort of put through these like est type exercises and things or, um, no, no, no.
1: I mean, I did, I did and landmark 30, I don't know, 30 years ago. So, I mean, it, I, I'm not, you know, that is isn't the way in which I work at this point. Um, well, there's just, so, so for example, so if people, um, are interested in this, there's a, there's a free, that, that book that you were given, people can download for free. So if they okay. go to mutual dash, if they go to mutual dash com, they can download it for free and they also will get a free six week e-course that kind of takes them, you know, a little bit deeper into the different perspectives, which will probably help a lot. Um. If they're, you know, if they're trying to understand what I'm trying to talk about. Um, so that mutual awakening will help. And then there's a practice. So I'll just give you a very simple thing that we do is there's a mutual awakening practice, which is so if we were to do it, um, we would sit across from each other um, and, and, you know, first just for a moment look into each other's eyes and just try to see who's over there, you know, to see into a deeper part of one another you know, maybe for a minute or two. And then I would ask you the question, um, what are you experiencing right now? And it's a simple question, but basically what I'm going to do from the moment you begin to share yourself is instead of even listening to you, my practice will be to put my consciousness completely over where you are. So I'm going to keep, you know, finding myself listening or having thoughts and then you know going back over and seeing if i can actually immerse and come from listening to you being inside of you so completely that i can feel what you're feeling and that i might even know what you're going to say before you say it so that's my practice for 10 minutes yours is to not sort of lean in and down sort of deep down into your experience or try to do something for some rooted place but you're going to lean a little bit forward into exactly, like, what's emerging, what's just catching your attention right now. So you're listening for the emergence of your experience, not, you know, what is your body feeling. Now, it could be what your body feels, you know, in the emergence, but you're listening to the emergence, and you also don't have to make sense. So you're not there to make sense to me. You don't have to speak in complete sentences. I mean, you can just let your consciousness... Be completely where consciousness is emerging for you, which is different. And so you'll do that for 10 minutes and I'll be completely with you. And then we switch. And then you would ask me. And then you have to bring your consciousness over where I am. So we're already sort of moving our consciousness around and becoming really hyper sensitive to what's emerging, which has a little bit to do with the space between us, Right. Mm-hmm. And then the the last 10 minutes, um, we would loop back and forth, In we'd put our consciousness then again someplace different, which is into the we. So I would say we're experiencing um, you know, this kind of real, like, attentive quality, and it's, it feels very sincere. That's what I actually feel between us. And then you would say we're experiencing, and then I would say we're experiencing, and I try to let the we speak instead of what do I think we are experiencing, right? Hmm. And that's a practice. And then we well, do that and, for ten.
0: 10- well, and I mean, maybe after you've read the book and you've done the e, you know, the e class. Right. Um, but I I wonder is how difficult is doing what you just described? I mean, it's a, it sounds like you're almost talking about becoming an
1: empath. You know, um being able to some to- degree, but with the with the right reason for it, it's mm-hmm. like moving just like meditation, you don't get it the first time,
2: mhm,
1: you know you sit down the first time, usually thinking,
2: mhm,
1: so people are doing that practice with each other once a week, you have different partners, you know we do different kinds of practices when we're together, so that as we're leaning that way and we're working that way, it starts to break up the kind of sense of automatic sense of separation and i've worked with you know at least a couple of hundred people doing this and i'm teaching on the shift network right now um Mm -hmm. so we do it online and there's people from china and russia and you know all over the place they do it on the phone and it's amazing i mean people are it's pretty mind-blowing like what is actually unfolding between people just even on the phone doing it that way
0: so wait a minute, when you do it on the phone, are you doing a one-on-one or are you're talking about like a group conference
1: call? No, they they actually do the practice I just said for half an hour at the end that you know people stay on the line and they practice together one-on-one. Oh, okay. and it's one-on-one. unbelievably powerful.
0: Yeah, I can see where if you did that on a regular yeah. basis. I mean, the first time doing it it would probably feel strange and self-conscious. But if you kept doing it, especially if it was somebody, the same person, then Mm -hmm. I I can see where the walls, if you will, would maybe start to disintegrate. And um, I I mean, look, and I'm thinking, you know, I mean, I've been married to the same wonderful man for 30 years. You know, it's kind of that thing Uh where you can finish each other's sentences. In a way, it's almost sort of the same thing. You know, it's this... Um, you know, I'm imagining, you know, that that you know each other so well, you're like you're in each other's skin. And, um, you know, and maybe that's, you know, uh, I don't know, could that be
1: sort of similar? Yes, partly. And it would be interesting, like if you, um, there's a virtual class I'm going to do on May 8th for three hours where people will call in and, and start to work this way on sacred dialogue, you know, sort of teaching people how to do this. And it would be fascinating to have you do it with your husband because it would even take what you already have, which sounds gorgeous. Could possibly open up some mystical dimensions hmm. that might be interesting. I may just we've had couples that. do it and they're like, oh my God, you have know, never felt like so profoundly close. Right.
0: Well, and and I'll be honest, and I'm not saying this, you know, from a bragging place, just from a realistic place. I mean, I don't know anybody as connected and close and really care about each other and know each other as well as my husband and I do. I mean, we work together, we're together practically 24/7, and you know, well, for some people that makes people crazy. You know, for right. us it doesn't. You know, for us, it, if we're not together, it
1: sort of feels like half of us is missing.
0: You know. Well,
1: beautiful. Um Yes, but it would be bringing humanity more into the multiple beloveds, like the space where we start to feel a kind of connectedness and closeness that's actually innately there. Yeah. It wasn't there, we couldn't find it, right? So well, you know, I'm we're curious. we're just sort of piercing through these membranes that we've gotten used to and um you know, I think in 20 years, this is what people will be doing. So rather than well, doing a lot of individual work, there will be lots of people, like, like, you know, the change of the last 40 years, that are discovering new ways of of accessing sort of the collective potentials that we have.
0: So do you have feedback from people about how this, I mean, can it transform their lives? I mean, how, is their outlook different? I mean, uh, like what?
1: Well, I mean, one of the things is it changes your consciousness. So you know, the a lot of the drama and the pain arises from our separate sense of self. You know, that we're kind of narcissistic in our very nature. You know, we're very self concerned. Mm-hmm. Like if, you know, and and like you were saying with the people that you're frustrated with, you know, it's small. You know, we our focus is narrow. Yeah. And there's a contraction to that. There's a pain that goes along with that. There's a drama that goes along with it. You know, the smaller you're, what you're paying attention to, kind of like the tighter your life is. Mm-hmm. And as you open up your consciousness and it gets more spacious and you're actually paying attention to other human beings and to bringing a new consciousness into the world, you know, by actually paying attention to something larger, your life changes. It really does. It gets more connected. It's more connected to more people. It's like you're more of a blessing than kind of a selfish, you know, what was that quote from, um, oh God, what was the guy's name? There's this great quote about, you know, not being a selfish little quad of ailments and grievances complaining that the, <laughs> that the world is not devoted to making you happy. <laughs> I can't remember who it was, but. I obviously memorized it because it was, you know, worth <laughs> worth reminding myself of. And I think that, um, you know, there's something about the support and the love and the connectivity between people, and beginning to pay attention to something a little larger.
0: Well, and, and I would worse. imagine when you're doing this practice, is one of the things you recommend
1: people not do is watch the news. <laughs> no, I, I don't necessarily recommend that they do that. No, actually, I think you become more sensitive. You know, you feel the news. You don't just watch it.
0: Well, I guess the
1: reason I said that is... I'm not a big news watcher, but um, one morning I was up early and I watched the uh, We Are Charlie thing, that whole, you know, the march that they had that one morning.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: It was beautiful. There was something collectively awake that morning. You could feel it, just like with 9 11, there was something that was awake in New York City, yeah. some from New York, in the streets for about three days, the horns weren't honking, and people had slipped into a kind of awakened connectivity, which is what I hope will happen um, through you know the small piece that I'm doing and, and just the, you know, the movement of consciousness on the planet, that eventually we will be awake together. They so have to be for,
0: so for listeners who might want to know more about this or uh, well, well first of all, to be a part of your group, do they have to be in Northern California or wherever it was on the east Coast, or um how else can they be connected
1: well i think I think the first step and i mean there there will be other other live groups and stuff um I think the first step is download the book at mutual dash dot com and you know see if if this perspective appeals to them. And the website, um, you know, at PatriciaAlbert.com, you know, there's lots of blogs and there's talks, and I also do a radio show like you do every two weeks, and they could listen to all of those conversations and really kind of immerse themselves in, like, wow, does this, does this really, appear, you know, does this touch some place in them that's going, oh, my God, thank goodness. You know, like I say, thank goodness this is actually existing or it just doesn't make any sense, you know, and if it doesn't, then they don't worry about it. Um, On May 8th, I am doing a virtual class online that they could sign up to do, and it costs like $59, and it's three hours. Um, You know, we take a break each hour, and they'll really get to experience exactly what I'm talking about directly. They'll have their own experience of what this is. So, if they you know sign up for the book now, um you know we'll send them an email and let them know about the the May eighth thing. I think on the last lesson you know they'll we'll send them a link so that they can do it if they want.
0: Okay. Well, Patricia, yeah. this sounds inspiring. This sounds hopeful. <laughs> it's um, hopeful, right? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, um, I'd feel better if, say, the whole city of Los Angeles were doing it. But you know, you got to start somewhere. <laughs> or well, oh, in Tustin, I just so you know, because I know you were in Orange
1: County. Um, the Unity Church at Tustin. We have 17 of the people down there are in the the group in in San Francisco. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. They are fabulous. That is the greatest. I am so in love with that church. Like if I lived down there, I would definitely go to the Tustin Unity Church because it's—they're just wonderful.
0: So it's so like a Unitarian a Universalist,
1: Universalist
0: church. There. What
1: is that? A Unitarian Universalist type church? It's just the Unity Church of Tustin. Um, it's a Unity Church. I don't know. I don't know what all okay. those the other distinctions are, but they have great people there, and they do some very interesting um, spiritual work. Okay, so if you're down well, there, check it out yeah
0: yeah i I may i mean it's uh it's sort of within driving distance, well,
1: ah, uh, not go
0: closer closer than uh closer than you are, well, well, Patricia, it has been uh fascinating listening to you, and uh i you know i I want to know more about this i'm going to delve a little bit deeper uh you know because i'm I'm sort of tired of the level we're all sort of functioning on, and you know i myself you know i've been looking for a way to you know how do you kick this up a notch you know how do we take it to the next level, and I think yeah. it's sort of um uh, you know, this this could be you know, could be it. Yeah. So well it's
1: interesting, like you know, I can tell, you know, you're obviously very committed, you know, you've done a lot of work and you're committed to awakening. It's people like you that come. Okay. That's that's who shows up or the people that are kinda like, Oh, really? Huh. Because you know you know what I'm talking about, or at least you sense it. And okay. you know that there's gonna be the next step and you know, not everybody needs to take that next step, but a bunch of us need to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, they say it only takes, you know, t- I think 10% to shift the consciousness,
1: you know, to, to hey, make that paradigm happen. working on it.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, thank listen. you.
1: Thank you very much, too. I really, really have enjoyed the conversation with you. It's been wonderful.
0: Me too. I, I really have. Uh, so thank you so much. And I'll be looking into this uh, a little bit more. And, um, you know, let's, uh, let's keep in touch. Let me know how this goes. And uh, if you think there's, um, you know, more to talk about or something to come back and report or uh, who knows, you know, maybe you grow this and it turns into something more widespread. We, you know, whatever it is, keep in touch. Let me know. And, uh, you know, we'll, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll tell the audience about it. I will. Thank you. Okay. All right. Good night. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that. And I have to take just a little bit of break here. So don't go anywhere. I have a lot planned for you um, after uh, we play this song. Uh, let's see. I think I'm going to go ahead and uh, play Everyday Goddess by Celia. Tonight is a Celia night. So uh, be right back to you. Don't go far. It's really no big deal, and it's every day, guys. She's a. M- Well, that was Celia and uh, that was Everyday Goddess so have you ever thought if corporations are people why don't the Republicans want to cut their welfare hmm some food for thought and while you're thinking about that here's a word from Joe Carson
1: most people see
0: Humankind is really
1: separate from nature, separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree is. And I came out of it. This is is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive
0: of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, that was Serena Roney Dougal. She's a Ph.D., and uh, she's in the film Dancing with Gaia. She talks a lot about dream symbols uh, and the unconscious and uh, the voice of the earth speaking to us. She's just one of the many... Uh, visionaries and teachers that are in Joe Carson's uh, film, Dancing with Gaia, which explores the connection between Earth energy, sacred sexuality, the goddesses, Gaia. Along with Serena, uh, there may be about 14 other uh, experts uh, who give us tools to feel the life of the planet within ourselves. And the DVD comes with a 45-page mini-book. And you know what? It only costs $20. Uh, and you can get your own copy at DancingWithGaia.com, DancingWithGaia.com. So, what do you think of that? Well, we are crossing the threshold into the second half of the show, and um, something I think maybe you uh, haven't uh, heard for a while, let me refresh your memory. This comes from my book, Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Most of us have come to realize patriarchy, ruled by a male-dominated society, revering solely a male god, is not working for Mother Earth or most of the people on the planet. How do we counter beliefs that there's no option but the authoritarian father? How does society go about making a course correction? How do ideas that permeate every level of society from womb to tomb, boardroom to bedroom, voting booth to the workplace, shift into a more fair, equal, and just world of partnership, caring, sharing, and peace? And that is uh, a quote of mine from uh, Voices of... The Sacred Feminine, which is uh, the anthology based on um, this radio show, actually. And I have to say, I just got uh, a wonderful review from uh, Harita mini She is a scholar in Greece, and um, I think that review is going to be uh, running in Sage Woman uh, sometime soon. I was trying to see if I had a copy of it here to uh, read some snippets, but... Uh, uh, I don't. I must have uh, moved it and put it somewhere else. So maybe I'll share it another time. But I'm wondering, have you been finding your sacred roar lately? Have you? <laughs> yeah, your roar. Uh, what are you doing to find it? Email me and let me know. You know, one of my listeners, Lean, um, she said that uh, she likes the sacred roar, but she likes the idea of a sacred howl even better. I think I like that, too, a sacred howl. So whether it's a roar or a howl, just find your voice. Stand up. Be counted. Don't allow yourself to be marginalized, devalued, or taken for granted. Assert yourself, because you are valuable. You are valuable. Don't take your cues from the patriarchy that tells you otherwise. Well, you know, there's uh, there's only uh, literally a few days left uh, to book the trip to Turkey, departing May 23rd with me and Dr. James Rietfeld. Uh We will be leaving May 23rd for 16 days. And um, I'm wondering, you still thinking about it? We do have a few seats left, uh, and this is for men and women as we embark on the trail of the great mother goddess of Anatolia, which is Turkey. Yes, Turkey. So, um, anyway, I have uh, some interesting things to share with you, as I promised at the top of the show you hear those bees buzzing so you know that uh, you recognize that sound especially if you've been around for a while this is the segment when we talk about the bees buzzing round in my bonnet Uh, I want to start with uh, something from uh, Pat Uh, Pat sent this in and I thought you might find it interesting Uh, it's called the penis and the male force a snippet from Isis and Osiris interesting isn't it It starts with this. It's a quote by Richard Rohr, and uh, he says, If men are not led onto journeys of powerlessness, they will always abuse power. And that's what this is about. Uh, That's what, uh, you know, these symbols and metaphors and things that we're about to talk about. That's uh, sort of the topic here. Um, And... uh, It says, out of all the myths worked into modern paganism, one of the most moving and powerful is that of Isis and Osiris. There are several different versions and several different components of this myth. And like all myths, it's a living symbol expressing eternal verities into temporal consciousness and conditions. There's no single meaning to the myth. The meaning for any one individual is different to another, just as the meaning for us changes as we change from youth to maturity to old age, we live and embody the myth and are changed by it. Well, the snippet of the myth uh, that we're focusing on here uh, is that concerning the right, the correct, the ma'at relationship of men and male sexuality in regard to the earth and to women. So, um this writer here says uh, that they are relating uh this from their own uh understanding and and you know personal limitations they underst- you know realize they're not perfect so they're speaking from uh you know their you know the male perspective and um in the myth the evil set half brother of the rightful king osiris kills and dismembers osiris into 14 parts Afterwards, the goddess Isis, his queen and sister, gathers up the parts of Osiris to revive him, but can't find his penis since it was thrown into the Nile River where it was swallowed by a bottom-dwelling fish. Isis then creates a new penis from clay, affixes it to Osiris, and breathes life into him to enact his resurrection. Only then does Osiris become lord of both the upper and lower worlds, and the upper meaning earth. Um, At this point, we reflect on the words of Richard Rohr above. Um, Osiris, through loss in battle, subjugation by his half-brother, and physical dismemberment becomes utterly powerless. The thematic connection with aspects of the Paschal mystery is obvious. It is this loss of power that enables Osiris to later become a just and wise ruler and king. He needs to die to his inherited and assumed male role and become utterly impotent. Osiris' restoration, the myth continues, is at the hands of and through the love and magic of Isis. The once-powerful king is rescued by a woman who herself, in some versions of the myth, becomes disempowered and forgetful of her divine nature during her grief-stricken wanderings. The relation of divinity to power is profound in this myth, as indeed it is in the Paschal Mystery. However, even when restored, Osiris is lacking his most vital and visible symbol of potency, his penis. The myth is clear. In order for Osiris to rule both the worlds, upper and lower, conscious and unconscious, he needs to give up his penis, his male power. He needs to accept the assistance of his wife and goddess and have a new penis, one made from and connected to the earth. Only then is he fit to rule in truth and balance, linked to the greater earth. Interesting, isn't it? Um, On an esoteric level, this myth installs within us, when worked, the eternal verity that the male force, including sexuality, is not the prerogative, prerogative of the individual man, but is a gift from the mother, from the earth. That is, sexual force in men and pubescent boys is not their own force, but flows through their body via their connection to all life. And when transformed, respected, and controlled, is a means by which they can connect more deeply to all life and to the earth. Interesting. Very interesting. And um, they show the Tarot card here of the lovers. And uh, just a little bit more of the article says, This verity runs in direct contradiction to both conscious and unconscious attitudes to men and the male force within our culture. Common idioms and sexual slang positions the penis as its own entity, its own force, and it is not uncommon for pubescent boys to become so focused on and enamored of their penis they give it a name. The penis, so the boy learns from the world around him, has its own agenda, often in stark contradiction to the boy or man himself. This was graphically illustrated in the comedy show Seinfeld, where Jerry the Brain played a chess game against Jerry the Penis to decide if Jerry the Man should continue dating and having sex with a woman he actually despised. Underlying the humor here is a dangerous meme of knowledge. The penis is separate from the man, yet it can control a man's actions. Men, we are told, think more with their penis than their brain. The Osiris myth opposes this enculturated view. His penis is from the earth, lovingly crafted by Isis. He rules by his acceptance of impotence and connection to both the earth and women. This truth is also shown forth, as well as many other things, in the lover's tarot trump as painted by the one we're looking at here by Pamela Coleman Smith, where Adam looks to Eve who looks to the angel. On a social level, this verity indicates the need for men to give up male privilege, to accept Uh, We have assumed power, vitality, respect, and force only through the fact that we are male, that we possess a penis. The power needs to be given back to whence it came, the larger world, women, and the earth, and we need to accept true equal partnership with women. This is not a sexual partnership and applies equally to straight and gay men. The myth of Osiris and Isis gives us all this and far, far more. No wonder it is a favorite of the pagan community. Of course, we need not only to read, but embody, chant, work, and enact the myth. Then we will understand. So that uh, that was very beautiful. I enjoyed that. And there's a little cartoon attached. Um, and uh, in the first uh, cartoon square, there's a little boy sitting on his mother's lap. And, you know, there's a word balloon. And the little boy is saying, uh, well, no, the mother is saying, well, when a mommy and daddy love each other very much, And in the next word, balloon, you see the little boy. Sometimes the daddy gets chopped up into little pieces by his angry brother, and the mommy has to collect them all and put them back together. But sometimes she can't find the daddy's penis, so she has to make one and then make love to the daddy's dead body, and then she gets pregnant, and nine months later she gives birth. And then she says, and that's where babies come from, little Horace. It's really sort of funny. Um so anyway, uh, I just thought I would share that uh thank you Pat for um for sending that in. And um next uh we have the cosmic story from uh, Kathy Pagano, our resident astrologer who uh, could not be with us tonight. But uh, it's important to know that uh, this Friday night and Saturday morning, there will be another total lunar eclipse like we had last year at this time. It's called a blood moon because all the pollution in our sky turns the moon's face red. During eclipses, the gravitational and and electromagnetic fields around the Earth shift, affecting our cellular structures, inducing evolutionary shifts within us. With the total solar eclipse two weeks ago occurring at the very end of the zodiac, our cosmic instructions are to let go of our old story about ourselves and the world and find a new one. As we release old habits, beliefs, and fears, all the energy we invested in maintaining that story is freed up to be used to rebirth a new life story. So we can begin anew. We can reinvent ourselves. This lunar eclipse has the sun in Aries and the moon in Libra, and our cosmic instructions tell us that the way to establish our new seed story is to partner with other people as equals as well as to bring our own masculine and feminine energies into alignment. We have to let our beingness determine what we do and how we do it. We are going through a realignment of energies now, so we'll be able to work with our new stories. The energies of the seven squares between Pluto and Capricorn and Uranus and Aries over the past three years are connected to this lunar eclipse, so bring revolutionary and evolutionary vision to what you, your new life will look like. So, that's from Kathy Pagano, our resident astrologer, uh, who writes on The Cosmic Story. And for more about it, you can go to her website, wisdomofastrology.com, and there are dashes in there between um, wisdom and of, and of and astrology. So, it's wisdom-of-astrology.com, wisdomofastrology.com. So, thank you, Kathy Pagano. And she will be back with us uh, on May 7th, and... uh, we will continue uh, the story. Uh, so, let's see. We have a little bit more as, as we uh, talk about the game that is frozen round in my bonnet tonight. Um, the other thing I wanted to share with you uh, was um, uh, from Dharma. She sent this. Uh, some information from an important article about why you should spend more time, um, you know, looking for experiences and why you should spend your money on experiences um, rather than things. And um, when I saw this, I could really relate because I think I stumbled onto this reality myself You know, maybe 10, 12, 15 years ago, I started to really realize that it was the experiences in life that really nourished me. The things, you know, they're sort of instant gratification and you forget about them. Uh, after a few minutes you probably know what i'm talking about but the experiences you know you have them for a lifetime you know i think about some of the trips we've been on and you know i don't remember the necklace i bought or the great pair of shoes or dress or you know even the car Uh, but i do remember the experiences of some of those sacred journeys You know, uh, I do remember special birthday parties, or when my husband proposed, or, you know, I remember those experiences. So anyway, um, let me just share some of this uh, article with you, and um, there's science behind it, actually, rather than just my anecdotal rambling. Uh, The article is called The Science of Why You Should Spend Your Money on Experiences and Not Things, and uh, it's on a website called fastcoexist.com, fast com. So it says, you don't have infinite money, spend it on stuff that research says make you happy. Makes sense, okay? Uh, most people are in the pursuit of happiness. These are... Uh, There are economists who think happiness is the best indicator of the health of a society. We know that money can make you happier, though after your basic needs are met, it doesn't make you that much happier. But one of the biggest questions is how to allocate our money, which for most of us is a limited resource. There's a very logical assumption that most people make when spending their money that because a physical object will last longer, it'll make us happier for a longer time than a one-off experience like a concert or a vacation. Well, according to recent research, it turns out that assumption is completely wrong. One of the enemies of happiness is adaptation says the doctor, uh, Gilovich, who's a psychology professor at Cornell University. He's been studying this question of money and happiness for 20 years. He says, we buy things to make us happy, and we succeed, but only for a while. New things are exciting to us at first, but then we adapt to them, um, unquote. All right, so rather than buying the next latest uh, iPhone or a new BMW, the professor, Gilovich. says, suggests you get more happiness spending money on experiences like going to art exhibits, doing outdoor activities, learning a new skill, traveling. Gilovich's findings are the synthesis of psychological studies conducted by him and others into the Easterlin paradox, which found that money buys happiness but only to a point. How adaptation affects happiness, for instance, was measured in a study that asked people to self-report their happiness with major material and experiential purchases. Initially, their happiness with those purchases was ranked about the same, but over time, people's satisfaction with the things they bought went down, whereas their satisfaction with experiences they spent money on went up it 's counterintuitive that something like a physical object that you can keep for a long time doesn 't keep you as happy as long as uh it doesn 't keep you as happy as long as a once and a done experience does ironically, the fact that a material thing is ever present actually works against it, making it easier to adapt. It fades into the background and becomes part of the new normal. But while the happiness from material purchases diminishes over time, experiences become an ingrained part of our identity. Our experiences are a bigger part of ourselves than our material goods. You can really like your material stuff. You can even think that part of your identity is connected uh to those things but nonetheless they remain separate from you in contrast your experiences really are part of you we are the sum total of our experiences interesting isn't it? uh it made me think about you know I live right here by the beach and at first, it was a big deal to live right here by the beach. But you know what? It's like what he says—you sort of adapt. You know, it just becomes, uh, you know, mundane. You take it for granted. It's there every day, um, and you know, you stop to, you know, you stop seeing it. You stop appreciating it. So he goes on to say, you know, if society takes uh, their research to heart, it should mean not only a shift in how individuals spend their discretionary income, but also place an emphasis on employers giving paid vacation and governments taking care of recreational spaces. Gilovich says, as a society, shouldn't we be making experiences easier for people to have? So that was most of the article. He says a little bit more, but I think, uh, I think you kind of get the drift there. So, you know, if you're kind of feeling like you're not happy, maybe you haven't had an experience in a while. You know, maybe you need to go on a picnic or go to a museum or do something you've been wanting to do for a while. So why don't you think about that? And while you're thinking about something you uh, might like to do, I want to remind you uh, of a quote of mine from my new book, Goddess Calling. And I said, The Dalai Lama said it would be Western women who would come to the rescue of the world. Might it actually be goddess theology? Yep, yep, yep. That's what I said in Goddess Calling. I also said, Do you hear our sacred roar? We are coming armed with ideals of the sacred feminine. We are carrying with us the archetypes of not just Mary and Kuan Yin, but also Kali, the Morrigan, Libertas, and Sekhmet. We're tired of waiting for you to evolve and do the right thing. No more will we tolerate a world of injustice and inequality. No more will we allow the destruction of Mother Earth. No more will we sit quietly and obediently as our dignity is stripped from us and our future stolen. No more will our sexuality and reproductive rights be in the hands of religious zealots and their handmaidens. We want partnership. We want accountability. We want dignity and freedom. We want reverence for the earth and all of humanity. We want a world of compassion and empathy where we recognize our interconnection and practice caring and sharing for the 99%. There is enough for all of us if it is equitably distributed. So what do you think about that? And that comes... From Goddess Calling. If you haven't picked it up yet, you can get a copy from me or you can get a copy uh, from Amazon. And uh, while I'm talking about me for a minute, uh, I want to remind you to please go to KarenTate.com. And if you can, uh, go to the Goddess Store page, scroll all the way down to the bottom, and please make a donation or buy one of my books. Uh, Help me keep doing what I'm doing. And speaking of what I'm doing, uh, next Thursday, uh, April 9th, Adrian Major is our guest uh, discussing warrior women. She has a new book out. Uh, you won't want to miss that as we learn more about the real Amazons and other such women around the globe that patriarchy has mostly written out of history in any meaningful or accurate way. Adrienne Major. I saw her give a talk at the the Getty Museum a couple uh couple months ago now and uh she was she was great and she's a lot of fun and uh I got to meet her in person and I was so glad when she agreed to uh to come on the show. All right. Well, that about does it uh, for tonight. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, dear listeners, for um, tuning in tonight and um, hope you will continue to tune in, uh, tell your friends about the show. Um, and, of course, uh, email me. Uh, let me know what you're thinking. Give me show ideas, uh You know, I always love to hear how much the show means to you and uh, how it makes a difference in your life. You know, it's gas in my tank. It keeps me going because, you know, despite what some people might think, I don't get paid to do this show. I do it because I love it. It's a guilty pleasure and also because I believe it's a service to the community, you know, to teach about goddess ideals and the things we can do to change the world. So don't forget... um, the last thing i'm going to uh say to close tonight's show is uh the four legs of the stool of patriarchy. Do you know what they are? The four legs of the stool that prop up patriarchy and keep it on its feet. Sexism, racism, classism, environmental exploitation. Yep. We got rid got to get rid of all four of those things the legs out from under the stool of patriarchy. And that about does it for tonight. Uh, have a great uh, Easter or Ostara Ostar weekend. Uh, oh, that reminds me, if you go to my website, uh, I have a, uh, a nice Ostara uh, meditation uh, there that you can listen to. Uh, it's it's uh, great for spring and Ostara. Or if you actually do have my Goddess Calling book, um, there is an Ostara uh, meditation in um you know in, in the in the book as well. I believe it might be chapter twenty two. Uh but uh, totally free on my website, KarenTate dot com. Just go to the Goddess Store page, scroll down, there are or like three or four free meditations there. And one of them is specifically for the holiday that's coming up this weekend. So remember, keep Goddess and Easter uh by whatever name we call her. And um, have a great weekend, and I'll be back with you next week. Good night.